You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Kevin Maurer, who is an award-winning journalist who has covered the military for more than a decade. In 2003, he followed the 82nd Airborne Division during the initial invasion of Iraq, and he returned to cover the soldiers more than a dozen times, including in 2010, where he spent 10 weeks with a Special Forces team in Afghanistan. He's also embedded with American soldiers in East Africa and Haiti. He's a co-author of several books, including Hunting Che, Valleys of Death, a memoir of the Korean War with Colonel Bill Richardson, Lines of Kandahar, the story of a fight against all odds with Green Beret Rusty Bradley, Gentlemen Bastards on the ground in Afghanistan with America's elite special forces, and No Easy Day, the first-hand account of the mission that killed Osama bin Laden. No Easy Day spent several weeks at number one in the New York Times bestseller list, and it was a top-selling hardcover book in the industry in 2012, and I'm assuming that a lot of you out there have read it. His newest book is American Radical, Inside the World of an Undercover Muslim FBI Agent, which he co-wrote with undercover FBI agent Tamara Elnery. And I was worried I was going to mispronounce that, but I'm not sure I should care because it's not a real name anyway. And you can pronounce it fine. So oh, great. Yeah. Uh, so welcome, Kevin, to SpyCast, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I, my, my first question is really about you in this case. You're an accomplished journalist, and you've made a remarkable career as a co-author and voice for those who might not have been heard otherwise. But most of the people you've written about are part of elite communities. They're SEALs, they're former Green Berets, they're top FBI special agents. In these communities, while not, let's not use the word unwelcoming to outsiders, they certainly have a higher standard for those they allow inside of their world. So how have you you been able to prove your mettle, I guess for lack of a better word, to people like SF and SEALs and FBI undercovers? how, how have you been able to ingratiate yourself to them enough that they, you said you, you were one of the go-to guys mm-hmm. for co-authoring books about these people. I don't ever lie to them. I just try to be as transparent as possible. And I don't, it sounds odd, but I don't worship them either. Yeah. I mean, I, I treat them like regular guys. Um, I'm interested in their stories. I'm interested in helping them tell them. But uh, I think a lot of times they get a lot of fans. Mm-hmm. 
more than they get people who are just interested in their work. So I, I've just tried to be very transparent. I tell them exactly what I'm going to do. I tell them exactly what, what the story should be, how to structure it. And then uh, and if they like it, we go on. If they don't, you know. And I think they appreciate that because, I mean, I think they come from a world where it's a team-based world. And, and guys, all right, here's your job. You do your job. And I, th I think they, they appreciate that. And I think that's how I sort of keep it balanced. Have you been able to understand the world a little better by doing similar? I mean, you were embedded. That mm -hmm. certainly makes a difference. Um, you know, I... I, I I looked you up online as I try to do as much research as I can, and, and you know, it looks like you've been at least tangentially involved with understanding some of what SF goes through with the Q course in North Carolina. Uh, and of course, when you were with uh, the Green Berets for 10 weeks in Afghanistan, that, that kind of experience has to play a pretty big role in the trust people put in you. Yeah, I mean, I've been able to build a bit of a reputation, and, and I think they respect the fact that I'll, I'll climb in the back of one of their trucks, I'll, uh, I'll eat all the dust that yeah. they have to eat, and I won't complain about it. And I, and I think, you know, that, that, that reputation holds, and then guys start talking. I mean, the community is not that big, mm -hmm. so I think there's enough rumor mongering about me that, you know, I've earned that, that reputation. Well, it's such an interesting dynamic, and, and, and it's not unprecedented. You think back to people like Ernie Pyle mm -hmm. in World War II, who, when he was killed, was treated as though he was a member of the unit when he was killed. So kind of there is this background of journalists being accepted into these communities. I mean, that's high praise. I mean, Ernie Paul's high praise. Um, yeah, you, you're accepted to a point, though. I mean, right. even in this community, you're, you're still, until you go through the qualification right. course, you're, not, you're nothing. You know, you're still just an observer. I mean, they like me. Um, I think it's, it's some of the techniques I've been able to, to, to use when I go to meet them. I'm big on not interviewing guys the first 24 hours I'm with a special operations team. I just let them be mm -hmm. because they're trying to figure you out. And you, the last thing you want, I want to do is, you know, force them to talk right. on the record. So I, I, and I, and I'm very clear on ground rules when I get on these embeds, you know, I have my notebook out. We're on the record. If you say something I want to use, I'm going to stop you. Take my notebook out. We're going to talk about it first. Otherwise it's all off the record because they won't talk to you otherwise. So right. I'm, I'm trying to be, I try to be very transparent in that. Well, I can count, the number of prominent books by former special operators written prior to 9-11, at least on two hands. I, I don't have to take my shoes off to do it, right? You're talking about Charlie Beckwith, Marchenko. There's some prominent books. And, and so th there's a continuing debate nowadays about this kind of transparency. And this takes place in the intelligence community also with the influx of former directors and deputy directors writing books. And the joke, you know, certainly within the special operations community is that people are getting book deals and buds, mm -hmm. you know, when they're, when they're going through. I mean, is this... We're, we're both, I think, ballpark probably around the same age, but we certainly remember pre-9-11 and just not having access right. to this kind of information. It seems like that has been just a dramatic game changer in so many ways with the kind of access the American public has to the inner workings of these organizations. I think it comes down to interest. Yeah. I think pre-9-11, we weren't interested as much. I mean, you had Somalia and you had Bowden's book, Black Hawk Down. Mm -hmm. After that, before that, though, I don't think we had the interest in special operations that we do now. Now we have video games, we have movies. I, I mean, I, I've argued that, that the special operations soldier, the, the bearded guy, yeah. you know, with the M4 and, the, and, the, and soft skin hat, probably like a ball cap of some sort, is our new cowboy. That right. silhouette is, I think, what the old days we used to look at as our hero cowboy. Now it's, it's these guys. And I think that has driven a lot of the reason why we see so many books. I mean, look, the, the two guys that entered Afghanistan for the CIA in the first part of the war, they both wrote books. Yep. So it's not outside, like this idea that there's some sort of legacy of silence or brotherhood of silence, I think is, is selectively used when they get angry. Yeah. <laughs> yes, no, that's a good point. Um, 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, you talk about interest, and, and one thing that we have to deal with here all the time at the Spy Museum is a lot of people's entry point to the world of espionage is pop culture. <laughs> and that's problematic in many cases. It's a double-edged sword. Like, it's wonderful because it makes them care about knowing more about it, but at the same time, they have this preconceived notion of the world that is so wrong because so much of pop culture is bad. And I think even with the interest in special operations, and even movies that are made directly from books or from real events, there's some misunderstanding of what happens in the real world. Do you see yourself as kind of someone who's helping to bring reality to some of the misperceptions about these special operations units? I mean, I try. I, I try not to paint them off as, you know, as we all like James Bond, mm -hmm. but they're not James Bond. Yeah. You know, I try not to turn them into superheroes. I think, I think that makes, makes them more relatable. It makes the story more relatable. and also makes the things that they do that are extraordinary that much more extraordinary. I think oftentimes pop culture makes these guys into more than they are. They are exceptional soldiers. Right. They are exceptionally skilled practitioners of what they've decided to do. But they're also they're dudes, man. I've hung out with a lot of them. Yeah. They're just guys that just they like they like to listen to country music. They like to listen to rap. They listen to all kinds of music. They, you know, I, I've I've had so many pop culture. They love action movies as much as we do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, and I so my hope my books take give you that sense of this guy did something extraordinary, but he's also kind of a cool guy. Right. Like, like there's a chapter in uh, uh, No Easy Day that we called the gun porn chapter, and and I, we had a long talk about this, and all that chapter is 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 Mark Owen putting on his uniform and where he puts all this junk to get ready to go on his mission. And I thought, one, it gave all the guys, the airsoft guys and those guys that love this kind of stuff, they're, they're gun porn. But I thought it also gave the common reader a chance to say, all right, the guy's meticulous, but this is why he puts the money. This is where he puts this right. camera. This is where he, you know, and gives you this, this insight into sort of this inner monologue of, of how, like, we all put our stuff in our pockets the same way. Yep. This guy's just doing it to go to the Bin Laden mission. So I thought it, it was just kind of a personal moment. Well, I've had the opportunity at the Spy Museum to watch spy movies with former spies, and mm -hmm. some of even current ones. And I've actually watched some movies that are about people who I'm literally sitting next to the person watching on the screen. Have you had that same experience mm -hmm. in the special operations community where you're watching Zero Dark Thirty, for instance, that, that final 30 minutes with somebody who was on that mission? I have not sat next to them, but I've yeah. talked at length yeah. about them. And, and, and the problem, though, is that I've hung out with enough of them now and watched enough of other movies with them that I nitpick. Yeah. Like, I really enjoyed Zero Dark Thirty. I really enjoyed the last 30 minutes yeah. for, for the raid. I thought they did a really good job with it. There's a couple things, though, if you wanted me to nitpick right. it to death, I'll nitpick it. But, I, you know, so, uh, for example, there's a, I don't watch a lot of the, the modern war movies because I just can't stop nitpicking things. Right. Where, but so I'm, I'm more. I love the old World War II movies. Like Force Ten from Navarro was yeah. my favorite World War II movie, and I'm not sure how real that is. And I never want to sit next to a World War II vet and have him tell me it's not because I just love it so I much. I drive people crazy when we watch movies about or shows about intelligence. I'm like, no, 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 mm -hmm. no, no. Like, just shut up. I'm like, it's entertaining to me. I mean, and I'm even like I'm watching the end of Zero Dark Thirty. I had a lot of people who, in the you know, completely lay people, saying. Oh, this isn't realistic because they're moving so slowly. And I'm like, ooh, you just pointed out the one thing that I found most realistic mm -hmm. about this scene. And so there are things like that where you're, you just kind of, it's it's not about separating the those in the know from those that aren't, but it shows that there is this misperception in the public about the, this world uh, that you know these books and these kind of movies, if they're done right, can start to change that dynamic and that narrative. I think it's a story we need to know. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that these special operations teams are, are, are not going to be busy, 
It's just, right. it's a misconception. So I think the more we understand what they do and more that we understand who they are, and, and I, what the big thing that Mark Owen was big on is that if we can recruit more guys like him, the safer we're going to be. So I think that's the way I sort of, the lens yeah. I look at these stories. Well, you, you mentioned that, you know, it's not like they're not going to be busy. They're actually more busy now than they've ever been before. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they're actually doing the heavier, they're supposed to be kind of the elite force on the outside that you bring in when you absolutely need something done. But they're doing the heavy lifting now in the fight against ISIS around the world. Like when all the regular troops have been brought back, mm-hmm. special operators are the ones actually in Africa and other places, which we'll segue to in a second. But they're now the forefront as opposed to a armor battalion or an, a group, even the Rangers, you know, beforehand. They are, and you're also seeing some of their mission sets migrating to the conventional side. Yeah. Like there's this idea that they're going to create a, uh, these training brigades out of conventional troops, so they can. I think I think we got to be careful now how we use our military. I think we are overusing special forces and special operations guys. They do a, a bunch of missions that they probably don't have the, the personnel to do. Right. But on the flip side, we also have to be careful how we use our conventional guys because if we put them all in these small footprint missions where they are advisors, they just don't, they're not trained to do that. They are exceptional at artillery or exceptional mm-hmm. as infantry officers, but they're not exceptional at sitting down and drinking tea and, and building that rapport or, or having the patience that it will take to train these, these, these armies. So I think we have a, as a country have to figure out our military policy because I think you could argue that the success that we've had as a country in Syria and in Iraq, Iraq especially with Mosul, the way that they, they were able to, to mentor the Iraqis. Now, there were guys very close. I mean, this was like coffee breath advising, yeah. right? But it was still, it wasn't the 3rd Infantry Division. Right. I think that's our, I think we need to look at that playbook, but, but how you build a military that can handle that playbook, I think is smarter guys than me are dealing with, yeah. I hope. Well, these, these units themselves were actually created for very particular purposes. Mm-hmm. They now it's been kind of mushed all together, but when you know Delta was created in an effort to create a counterterrorism force and a high-value target snatch team, the Green Berets were created under the Kennedy administration for teaching, for creating mm-hmm. counterinsurgencies. SEALs were created for various particular purposes as well, just like Rangers and just like Air Force para-jumpers and Marine Force Recon, which is now the radar. They all had their own jobs. That doesn't seem to... There doesn't seem to be that level of demarcation anymore. Um, and you have SEALs doing training missions where that was the purview of the Green Berets. That's why they were created. And you, and you have Marine Force Recon doing things that normally would be done by Ranger Bats. Do you see that as problematic? Or is it now just everybody JSOC? Let's roll with it. I think it's problematic. No. I really do. And I think you've seen it some uneven you know, mission sets in Afghanistan of late because... Some units are made to do certain things. Yeah. And I think you can use the SEALs to train. Like, for example, uh, the SF guys had this thing called the Village Stability Operation where they were going out into villages. They were setting up camp there. They were uh, building up a local police force. They were, they were creating this. The idea was they're going to create this bottom up mm-hmm. to get to Kabul. They also, they also had a mission set where they were going with commandos every day for 72 hours, 48 to 72 hours. They would go out, go after target. They'd hit the target. They mentor the commandos and they come back. And I kept talking to commanders like, "Why don't you use the SEAL teams to go with the commandos? Because they're really good at that, and use the SF guys for the VSO sites because they're really good at that." Right. That's where I think our, our planners need to think about is how right, you've got these tools and keep them as tools. Uh, I think you're uh, you're pointing out something I think that's that's really true, which, which is that they think they're all the same tool and right. they're not. Like Rangers are really good 
at going finding stuff and breaking it. Right. They're really good at that. If you want to take an airfield, you drop a battalion of rangers and, in, you'll and that's get the it. best force mm-hmm. in the world. If you want to blow the living crap out of something and you know shoot up some, that's the SEALs, right? Right. If, if you want to train an insurgency against a government, mm-hmm. that's where you get the green berets. Like, I mean, that, that, that's, it's almost going back to basics and it seems, and I understand the chaos of the last 15 years has caused a lot of lines that were very clearly drawn in the sand including the line between the intelligence community and special operations, to disappear completely. Right. Um, but, I mean, I, I argue, and it sounds like we're on the same page about this, that we kind of need to go back to our corners in many respects and, and start realizing that there's, there's a method to the madness in the beginning. Oh, I agree. I, I mean, I, I, but the, the, the tribalism, uh, going back to the tribalism in those missions, I think it would be important. But, I mean, it's an orgy of money now. And yeah. no one wants to lose their budget. And SF guys are, you know, special operations guys are, are, are it. So I think that's part of the problem. And then uh, the Raiders and MARSOC, the introduction of MARSOC, I think that flipped things a little bit. Because they basically took the, the, the mission set for special forces yeah. and said, we're going to do that. Yeah. I've heard good things about the Marine Raiders of late. I know they had a, a rocky start, but I think they've come on of late and, and they're needed. I mean, if you could create another set of, of, of teams that can do the, this mentoring mission, cause it's not going away. I think that's, that's helpful, but I, I, I tend to agree. I think, I think that the military leadership needs to think about how they're going to employ these guys and maybe sit, have a little pause and figure out the best way to do it. It was, you spent a lot of time with it, with capital S capital F special forces. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, people don't realize, um, how much training they go through. And it's not just how to blow stuff up and how to fight. I mean, we're talking about medical training and engineering and, la- you know, years of language training. And that, that I, I, you know, that can be used if used well in an exceptional way. Um, and, and having them do, you know, hunt, hunting kill missions is the, what a waste of asset, I think. You know, you have people that are trained specifically to do that job. Yeah, turning them into to a mini Delta Force yeah. or, or a mini Ranger Regiment is is pointless. Yeah. I mean, you spend too much money on them. Um, and, and I thought the most effective I've ever seen a team is when they work, when they do exactly what they preach, which is work by, with, and through. When you can, uh, and Rusty Bradley's book I think lays out this this scenario really well, where where you can take an Afghan force, you can get them in trucks, you can drive them across the desert, and you can attack a stronghold, a, a Taliban stronghold, in the daylight twice by mentoring Afghan soldiers and doing it is special forces right. at its best. Right. And if we can, you've got to protect that asset because those guys are special. There's a special kind of right. special operations guy that goes, this, I mean, they're all special in their own way, but SF guys, and it may be because I've spent so much time with them, yeah. I have a soft spot for them. They, they interest me the most because of that multifaceted, because right. they can speak the language. I was with a seventh group team in, in Kandahar, and they, in order to talk um, so that they, everybody didn't know what they were saying, they would speak in Spanish because they were all a seventh group team. They all spoke Spanish. So it was really, uh, I mean, I like them because I think they're so well-rounded. They're interesting dudes. Let me, let me ask you about an article that you just, you co-wrote with Spencer Ackerman um, for, for the Daily Beast that came out as of this recording a couple, I mean, a week and a half ago or something yeah. like that. And it's about uh, what we're doing in Africa, which, which doesn't get any attention. Uh, unless something blows up. And it's about a man, a former, well, former at this point, but at the time, a current special operator uh, named Logan Melgar, who was U.S. Army Special Forces. And unfortunately, he was killed. Um, and that's sad in itself, but the story has gone completely bonkers uh, in a direction that I never expected to see it go. 
We've seen cases in the past where contractors in U.S. forces have faced off the famous Blackwater, you know, guns drawn versus the military, but not many where elite U.S. forces have turned on each other. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the background of that story and, and why it stands out so much? I mean, you don't often have uh, SEALs being accused of killing a Green Beret. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Um, when I first heard it, I didn't believe it. Um, when, this, when the New York Times story came out, I, I was sort of shocked. Because um, it's, it's really a terrible story. I mean, there's no real... I, I can't put my... I, I had a hard time wrapping my head around it. Um, and then it just information started flowing to me. It seemed like a weird nexus point between my, my contacts on both sides of it. And... Uh, I mean, the more I dug in, the more I realized that what they, what, you know, what they're accused of, uh, the reason, the alleged murder happens because the SEALs were, were allegedly taking money that they were supposed to give to their sources. Then um, the sources that I've talked to that have told me about the case, I mean, it's a petty crime. Right. That, and ha- the, the, the big question I have, and I've not been able to actually lock it down completely, is exactly how it escalates. How does it come to the point where they, they actually choke him? Or allegedly choke him. The, the question, I, that's the one question I haven't answered yet. Yeah, but these are elite troops that are operating very far away mm-hmm. from U.S. forces. And also, they're working in areas that don't get a lot of attention and oversight. And, and, and by definition, anyway, they operate kind of clandestinely and in the shadows. Um, you know, so this is probably happening other places. And you, like you said, this is not, they're not stealing millions and millions and millions of dollars. It was relatively petty. And even in this case, it doesn't sound like the murder was an intentional murder, too. But the real tricky part comes from the attempted cover-up that comes afterwards, which is where perhaps maybe it differentiates the SEALs from the Special Forces and the, the ability to think on their feet. The cover-up is what got him in trouble. Uh, the initial reports, I think, were met with skepticism at, in AFRICOM, which is in Germany, immediately. Yeah. Um, and that's what, that's what did him in. Um, they, the, the story did match because of uh, Melgar and, and his... Uh, he didn't drink, from what we understand. And they tried to claim that he was drunk. And he was and drunk. And then the uh, autopsy came back, and uh, the toxicology came back, and he didn't have any alcohol or drugs in his system. So, But, I mean, the, the interesting part is, you know, the, what I've learned a lot more about is what they were doing in Mali. Like, the, what they were doing there is, is what, you know, we, and we had talked about this, I think, before that we started, which is that that line between spies yeah. and intelligence and special operations guys. And that line has been erased. And that what they were doing was, a, it was a spy mission. It was an intelligence gathering mission, which is why they had access to that money. Well, that's a lot of what we're doing in the African command at this point. I mean, there, there's, there's not a lot of full-fledged battles going on. I mean, you've got Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab operating within that, that AO. But for the most part, this is not like, fight for Mosul or fight against ISIS. These are small counterterrorism operations. These are intelligence gathering operations. These are, in many ways, trying to shore up the local population against the spread mm-hmm. of some of these. So this is not a traditional military operation. This is actually why you have SF and the SEALs there. Right. I mean, it was a small team picked, and they were doing, an, from what I can gather, a, a program that you know was highly compartmentalized, very specific on, on building an intelligence network. And and the folks I've talked to since then have said the biggest, you know, besides the tragedy that this has happened to everybody involved, this program now has been derailed. No. You know, because they can't do anything now with this program. Oversight is now on, a, you know, it's part of an investigation. Uh, and, and from what I can gather from my sources, this, this was a very important program. Well, you spent region. some time in East Africa. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and you might know more than a lot of people do about how 
our heavy footprint in the Middle East has kind of pushed out some of the radicalism into Africa. I mean, it had been anyway, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't know in 93 when we were in Somalia was that Al-Qaeda was there as well, or at least an organization that would start to be called Al-Qaeda soon thereafter was in Mogadishu at the time and maybe even Bin Laden, if we, you know, that would have been a hell of a catch at that point. Um, you know, but these are failed states or close to failed states, and that's just a recipe for disaster. That's where you can actually find the next group that will rise up and, and be the next Al-Qaeda. And so the mission is incredibly important, but very few people are paying attention to it. Um, and no one, there's no political will whatsoever to send in like a division into sub-Saharan Africa uh, to fight against the Al-Shabaab or, or Boko Haram. You know, we say, give us our girls back, and then that becomes our Twitter feed. That's about it. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I've, I, I, I covered the East Africa mission in Kenya and in Ethiopia and in 2006, and I just went back, I think, 10 years later, and I did, I did the Kony mission in Central African Republic. And I, trying to sell those stories, I mean, I, I hate say, People just don't care. Yeah. I mean, most Americans think Africa is a country. Right. Let alone, and, and no one has any sense of just how big the African continent is. It's huge. Yeah. So getting around Africa is not easy at all. Um, but th- these are huge. There's huge holes now. There's huge areas where these groups now can strive. They can set up these camps. They can set up in, in, in relative security and, and, and let things fester and recruit. I mean, look, uh, Libya is a problem. Mm-hmm. You've got um, issues in Somalia, which has been forever. Uh, Mali, there's that Mali-Niger border area that, that's, you know, but these are also historically places where criminals have thrived as well, you know. Um, but there is no will to do, and, and right. if, even, if you, even if you could get a political will to put a division into Africa, like, what would it do? Where's the center of gravity? Where are they going to go after? What, what, what would, because if you're t- a conventional mission in Africa, you'd have to say, all right, General, here's your division. Here's where we're setting you up. Here's where you're going to go and do it. This is what you need to accomplish. And I think going back to what we talked about before about using these special operations teams to do what they're supposed to do, there's few conventional military divisions that you can hand a mission to and say, all right, now we're going to break you up into small groups and scatter you across this continent, and all these guys are going to work into, you know, it just can't happen. Good luck, first lieutenant, who's a year out of West Point. Yeah, Uh, exactly. Well, I mean, I think that's people want to try to compare the mission in Africa to what we did after 9-11, but not realizing that the Taliban had a kind of a center of focus. I mean, you knew where they were. I mean, even even when Al-Qaeda splintered and core Al-Qaeda was basically defeated, you still had AQAP. You knew where they were in Yemen. You knew you didn't necessarily know exactly where people were, but you, you had a pretty good idea. But the Middle East is tiny, right? And even if you expand it to Pakistan, if you expand it down to you know, the Saudi area and Yemen. It's still relatively small, basically the east coast of the United States. Africa, again, you mentioned this, is, is massive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once you move, you know, move past the Sahara area, which we already know is going to be predominantly Muslim with the problems with, you know, Libya and other places, you now see, I guess, the diaspora of radical fundamentalism spreading south. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kenya is not that close to the Middle East, right? And some of these ideals are, ideals are spreading pretty quickly. I mean, they're everywhere. Yeah. I mean, they're in Latin America. I mean, this, ra- but see, and I'd, I'd argue radical Islam is not a religious movement. It's a political movement. Right. And when you have disenfranchised people, 
that are looking for something and you can feed them this idea that here's who you need to hate. The reason why you can't get food, here's who you've got to hate. That, you can spread that anywhere. I don't think it has to be just in the Middle East. Well, I mean, an economic foundation to that yeah. as well. And if you, you know, the fact that American policy, I'm not trying to rip on us, worldwide, Western policy has been essentially to ignore Sub-Saharan Africa, other than they have AIDS crisis in the back in the 80s. And USAID has done a little bit, but that funding has been cut back dramatically. You're basically setting up places where people don't have a lot of choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have a young population that doesn't have an opportunity to get a good job, and then you have you know, people going in and saying, hey, we'll pay you to be part of our Boko Haram or somebody moving forward. What's well, the whole problem early in the uh, in the Afghan war when, they, when the commanders used to tell me that there were big T Taliban and little mm-hmm. T Taliban. Big T guys were the true believers. The little T were the, the farmer who he could make a couple bucks for his family and all he had to do was dig a hole and put a bomb in it. Yeah. He didn't care. He wasn't really fighting the United States. He was just trying to make some cash. Um, and so I think we got to worry. That's, that's where we get into this whole problem, you know, how do we sell this message? How do we debunk the, the myth? And, and I think we have to be careful about how we characterize Muslims in the United States. And I, that gets us in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk about that. I want to ask one last question. We'll jump right into the book because yeah. that's kind of fundamental of all this. Is that partnerships? And I think that you know one of the great things about special forces, capital S, capital F, and I just have to say that because people use that as kind of ubiquitous for everybody. We're talking about the Green Berets, right? And I know it drives them crazy, too. One of the great things about them is that they do establish these partnerships with the local forces, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they train them up. And, and we don't traditionally have great partnerships with some of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa, and the ones that we have, have established over the last 10 years are pretty fragile. And you can see that with the accidental or purposeful or stupid inclusion of Chad on the travel ban and then you know no one knew why no one knew what was going on and the fact that it set our policy back significantly because the the Chadian army was like okay have a nice day and then we've got our SF guys on the ground being like where the hell did our support go it's like we just got to put on the travel ban and it turned out they didn't turn it in their paperwork on time stupid it was ridiculous but those aren't partnerships that the American public it's pretty much, you know, we know we've been working with the Saudis since 1946, mm-hmm. right? We, we've been working with the Israelis in the Middle East since, 19, you know, since the inception. And a lot of people know the history of our partnerships with Iraq and then that going bad in Iran and the Shah, et cetera. Most people don't understand the political dynamics in Africa, unless you're an African studies major somewhere. So before we can get people interested in it, and I understand your frustration and not being able to even sell these stories, is there a step before that we just haven't done in saying, like, here's the way things are going on some of these African countries. Here are the ones that have stable governments. Here's the ones that we can potentially partner with moving forward. And here's the ones that, you know, you have the Central African Republic or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is not democratic. It's not a republic. And the only thing they got right in the name is the fact that it's in the middle of the Congo. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that people don't quite grasp yet. Uh, until... until I think the African continent or a country in Africa becomes, it, it has to enter into our, our cultural ideals. Yeah. I mean, not ideals. I mean, how, how, how do I put it? By? The Middle East is important to us because of 9-11. I mean, I, mm-hmm. it was important before. I think Israel has always has been a, you know, an issue. The Arab-Israeli conflict, that was always something everybody kind of knew about before mm-hmm. 9-11. But after 9-11, everybody kind of has their own idea of the geography of, right. of the Middle East. Uh, Africa does, has never risen to that. I mean, I think, I think you're right. I think most of our, our uh, ideas of Africa is either 
food crisis or Somalia. Mm. Um, and I spent some time in the Central African Republic and Uganda. And we've got a huge partnership with Uganda, but so do the Chinese. Mm. You know, the Chinese have a huge partnership with the Kenyans. Um, I don't, I, I don't know how to sell Africa. Right. I think it's a really interesting place. I'd li- I think every time I've ever gone to do anything, uh, my parents lived in South Africa for a while. I, I love the African continent. I, I love traveling there because um, it's never what you think. That's what I always take away. Yeah. It's never what you believe in your head. It's always a lot better. Um, but I don't know how to sell it to the, to, to the general public. I think if we went out man on the street and said, you know, name you know, what is the biggest issue facing Africa? I don't think anybody, and I, I don't know enough about it. So uh, to me, I think part of my frustration is that I'm su- really curious about what's going on in Africa, specifically in Kenya and, and in Central African Republic and, and now Mali and, and Niger, mm-hmm. that I'd like to do more, but I just can't, I can't even get newspaper editors to get it because right. they just don't think it's not high on their list. Yeah. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Let's shift focus to, to your new book, American Radical, because while this is a counterterrorism story, most of the books you've written in the past have been primarily focused on the military. Um, was it difficult to make the kind of the intellectual switch from military and special operations to kind of a government law enforcement agency? Was there kind of a dramatic kind of brain paradigm that you had to kind of change over on there? I thought it would be. I thought okay. it would be really hard. Um, and this one came... It took me, I think, eight months to write. It, it came fast. Because it was a story I've always wanted to do. I've never found somebody to do it. And, and so when I finally got a chance to write this book, I mean, I joke, I, I, we joke that he's James Brown Bond, or Brown James Bond is what mm-hmm. we call him. Um, Tamer was really personable, but his story sat with me because I thought, we need to, this needs to be, this needs to be told. Yeah. And so, but I had, a, I had, like, I was nervous when I started because almost all of my books, the Muslims are the bad guys, mm-hmm. and, there's, and there's a big gunfight somewhere in this thing, and this book doesn't have yeah. either one. So, not to get into this, but there's been clearance slash approval issues with books that you've been involved with in the past. That's true. Uh, you can Google that out there if you want to know what I'm talking about. Um, I'm sure this probably was more carefully vetted. Uh, did you go, do you have to go through the review process with FBI? with Tamer before you, this book was published? It did. It went through. Yeah, it took 30 days. The, the most efficient and best review process I've ever been through. <laughs> From all the people I've talked to, that sounds like one of the fastest ones that's yeah. ever happened. And it yeah. was uh, three edits, I think. Hmm. I've, I've, I've kind of got what they want in there and what they don't want in there. Yeah. So I've been able to sort of massage and write around things that I know that they dislike. Yeah. Um, but this, I, I was really, honestly, I was really impressed by the FBI. 
on their review. I thought they were fair. The, the edits that they wanted were reasoned. They made sense. It wasn't yeah. something, you know, they weren't trying to hide something. They weren't trying to, to whitewash something that, that maybe that did make them look the best. Uh, but there are, there are methods in here. I mean, that's one of the, you know, the agencies always worry about releasing sources and methods. That's the holy mm -hmm. grail of things you want to keep classified. But there is undercover methodology sprinkled throughout this book, and I was actually surprised to see some of it. You know, even, I mean, I have this as, as a point to talk to you about later, but the idea of using Hollywood help train undercovers. Mm -hmm. You know, that seems like a method to me that I was surprised to actually see in this book. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I was surprised at some of the things they, they have no problem with. Um, yeah. and, and, the, and the acting coach, Howard, yeah. he was so excited it was in there. <laughs> so <laughs> I bet he, he's like, all right, here yeah. we go. So One thing that I found refreshing about this, and you've already kind of hinted at this already, was that the book flies in the face of how some people like to categorize Muslims. Um, and actually, this seems like an undercurrent of the book because it seems to be one of the things that drove him to do his job so well was the mischaracterization, as he would put it, of the, of, especially after 9-11, of course, mm -hmm. of the way that people perceive Muslims here in the United States. I mean, that's what stuck with me when I first started working on it. I mean, imagine a, on, on September 12th, you wake up as a Muslim, and you're now public enemy number one. Yeah. And I just couldn't wrap my head around it because I've never, you know, I've never experienced that. And I think, you know, his desire to serve, his patriotism, I mean, his patriotism, I, think, I would argue, far exceeds mine. Like, I'm more of a cynic. Mm -hmm. He's not. Um, and I think what I tried to get across to people is that, you know, our immigrant past, like I wrote the book about Che and the, and the two guys that went after Che were, were Cuban exiles and their love of the United States exceeds mine. Yeah. Like th th we gotta stop believing that these, these folks who come here and so oftentimes come here sacrificing everything don't love the country because yeah. they do. Oftentimes love it more than we do because we appreciate it. We, we were born here. We're, you know, we sort of started here. Well, it's fascinating to me about, he, he talks about his self-identity before 9-11 was just as a guy, right? Just as an American where Islam was just part, like the rest of us, it would be like, yeah, I love baseball and I like movies. Islam was like that for him. It was just a part of who he was. But after 9-11, it was his identifier. Right. You know, kind of the, the kind of self-understanding of who you are dramatically changed that day for him. Well, the only time he was, he was ever a, a Muslim or an Arab was when he was at work with his Jewish friends and they were making fun of each yeah. other. I mean, it wasn't an issue. It was like, you know, just like he was, he's, you know, he was a Mets fan, he was a Jets fan, and he was a, a Muslim, just like his buddy was, you know, blah, 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 and an Episcopalian. It yeah. just didn't factor in. And, and this, the scene that, that sticks with me is when he's, at, he's watching the coverage, and he thought that the newscaster was actually angry at Islam. Yeah. That, I just can't imagine that. I just can't imagine it, that, that feeling of, of being now, like, wait a second, now I'm a bad guy? Now I'm with the bad guys? And, and I think that's a very dangerous mindset. Well, and you can see how there's a bit of a double-edged sword with that because all of a sudden he's thinking of himself as the bad guy, you know, as where all of a sudden Islam becomes predominant in his life. But at the same time, the FBI is kind of thinking the same thing in a different twist where, hey, look, you are a Middle East native from Egypt. You're Muslim. You speak Arabic. You, you look like them, you understand them, you're perfect to help us defeat them, and you've been doing undercover work now for the better part of a decade. It was kind of the perfect storm that even the good work he was about to do also defined him 
as first and foremost being a Middle Easterner in a Muslim. Right. I mean, if I made him up, if I said to you, I wrote this novel about an immigrant from Egypt who was a nar- uh, narcotics agent for years and then became this, this undercover guy for the FBI, you, you would say, no, it doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, he's, he is that, in, in, and that's what struck with me when I first met him. Is I, it's like, you can't make this guy up. And then the fact that he, he was what he's able to do, I mean, this case is, or this book is interesting because it follows just the one case that's declassified. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, this guy's worked a long time. And, and you know, what I took away from it is uh, that inner monologue, I think, is what makes it, Co-writing books are fun. Um, I like writing other books too, and I was sort of—I had another book I was working on that didn't work out, um, and so I was not ready to jump into another co-writing gig. But this one, I felt like it would not have been good if, as good if I wrote it from the third person. Right. You needed him to be your guide. You needed him to see the world in his through his eyes, and I think that's a, that's the important piece of this book too. Well, one of the key components, what I liked about the book so much, and what makes it so human is. His quest, and this is a bullet point I was going to hear deal with later on, but now's a good segue to it. His quest to see the humanity and even the people that he was investigating, and almost to like the very end, the big baddie, you know, the number one target. Mm-hmm. He was struggling with this idea that he knew for a fact this is a bad guy. He knew he was radicalized. He actually identified him as being a radical. But all the way till the last moment, he was trying to find ways. Can, is, can he be rescued? Is this somebody I can bring the humanity back out? It's almost, I immediately thought of, you know, Return of the Jedi, because I'm a Star Wars nerd, mm-hmm. of like, there's good in him still, I can feel it. And even at the trial, and I'm not give the end away, I mean, the, the, they arrested him, he was tried. But at the trial, he's looking over to see, is there any humanity mm-hmm. in there that I can kind of grab onto? And that, I think you're right, requires that kind of his voice right. to get to that level. I mean, Shaheb is an interesting guy, all alone. Like, mm-hmm. if you want to just do a book about this terrorist guy, Shaheb is, uh, we, jo- we joke, is like the Forrest Gump of jihadis. Like, he does things that you should not be able to do. Yeah. Um, like, you shouldn't get a cab from Tehran to go to Zidane and meet with the Al Qaeda recruiter. Like, you just, it's not like you go down to the office. I mean, you can't yeah. do that. What's, it's the, what's the, the joke, the Adam Sandler movie, where they're calling the Hezbollah okay. like, customer line? Like, that's the kind of stuff this guy pulled off, and I cannot, from, I still don't understand how he did it. Yeah. The thing about Shaheb, though, was he was brilliant. I mean, he was, he was doing things that were going to save humanity. He was curing diseases. He, he was a brilliant guy. The fact that he got, you know, that he was able to get recruited and radicalized by this, this ideology is actually a, the big, one of the biggest sins of the whole thing. And I think that's what stuck with Tamar. Mm-hmm. I think the idea that you know, this guy in all, should really be helping humanity, and all, now all he wants to do is murder people. Um, but I think t- the big one thing that Tamara was big on too is he didn't want to save him from jail. Right. He wanted to save him from, save his soul almost. Yeah. It was almost like a, a, you know, a Christian Southern thing. He wanted to, to save his soul more than he wanted to, to get him out of jail. Well, I mean, I, I think you, the Christian Southern thing makes sense because you're looking at somebody who, from a religious perspective, was saying, hey, look, you've gone off the path of true Islam. Now, mm-hmm. they both were saying that about each other at that point. Yep. Um, but if we understand fundamentalism, the people who are the, the terrorists are the 1% of 1% of 1%, and the people like Tamar are the 99% who are saying, look, this is what Islam is actually supposed to be, not your crazy blow yourself up and other people up ideal of Islam. What I thought was great about this book, uh, and the, actually what I was surprised that was in there, 
uh, was it kind of really does walk people through counterterrorism undercover work mm-hmm. in a way that you haven't seen a lot of other places. And it was very different than some of the undercover work that he'd done in the past, doing narcotics work. The really kind of the slow burn of undercover work in CT, where it could take months and months to kind of create not only the cover, and it becomes a legend after that point, but kind of how you slow play some of these guys. And I love, I love the fact, and this is something that happens all the time in the intelligence world, there's tensions between those that want to take somebody down when you've got enough evidence to put them in jail and the idea of patiently waiting to see where they can lead you. Um, I want to know a little bit about the American sleeper. There's the tensions between Canada and the United States that can really come forefront mm-hmm. in this book. Um, at the end of the book, I'm like, all right, where's the epilogue saying what we know about this guy? We, uh, from what I, all right, so I, I don't know that much about him because I don't know how... Uh, he was never identified. Yeah. I mean, they had a chance with Shaheb. Uh, Tamer believes that he's real because Shaheb never lied. I think there's some debate among the intelligence community, is he real or not? Mm-hmm. Um, I know Tamer has said in other, other interviews that every time he hears about a terrorist attack, he thinks about the American sleeper. But what we know about him is that if you believe Shaheb, there's another guy that was like Shaheb, but he was here in the United States, yeah. and that he was trained right before Shaheb was trained by the same guy. Um, I have no reason to not believe it. Right. Um, I, 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 I have not been able to get the case agents to tell me enough about <laughs> what he, who he is or what they think he is. Well, and the, and the, and the reason the Canadians finally decided to wrap up the case is because I believe the Boston Marathon bombing happened, and they were like, we can't let something... Like, imagine what would happen if we kept following this guy and not arresting him, and he actually does something like right. this. But it basically burns the potential to find someone potentially in the United States as a sleeper. Right. I mean, they had the potential yeah. to create... All right, so um, if, if it had been able to play out, Shaheb and, and Tamar will go overseas together. They will meet with El Masul, and they will, f- they will get the identity of the sleeper in order to create a bigger cell. Mm-hmm. Because remember, Sh- at that point, Shaheb is trying to get Operation Happy New Year off the ground where he wants to do that bombing in, in Times Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Canadians weren't going to let him go overseas. I think right. they feared that he was going to either disappear or they weren't sure what was happening. They didn't trust it. And, I, and I, if you flip it, I don't know how, the, how much the Americans, if the Canadians had the same thing, right. would be like, oh, yeah, take him overseas. Yeah, right. That's fine. So, I mean, as much as the Canadians come off sometimes as the bad guys or, the, uh, or they're, they're, they're wringing their hands and they're ruining this, I, I, don't, I don't know. I think it, it goes either way. No, and we work very closely with, with right. the Canadian intelligence. I wasn't thinking of them as a bad guy. I just think mm-hmm. it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because oh, yeah. It's almost always going to be the case where you have, unless you have the guy, you know, Bin Laden, but there is no Bin Laden anymore, right? Even Baghdadi is only one leader of a group of people. He's not the worldwide leader of Islamic terrorism. You're always going to have someone that can lead you to somebody else, right? right? I mean, you're seeing that in American politics right now where they're arresting somebody to try to lead to somebody else. And in this case, you can follow someone to the leadership and try to work your way up. But at what point do you say, all right, it's way too dangerous to let this play out the way we want it to? And that dynamic is shown really well right. in this book. Uh, yeah, the other thing, too, is you have to think about it, too, is the, the, the team that was doing this case, the FBI case agents and, and Tamara, who's every day spending time with these guys, mm-hmm. they've got a better handle on how these guys are, are feeling, how Shaheb's feeling, where the, how long they can hold this than, than management is. 
But management has to make the decisions. It's management that has to go to the White House, that has right. to go and, and answer this stuff. And they're also seeing things from a big picture, too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's right. that you see that in the military all the time, where it's the commander on the ground understands the commander, you know, understands the actual temperate tempo on the ground, operations on the ground, but people back at the Pentagon understand the big, big picture. Mm -hmm. uh, and that seems to work, and that, that dynamic seems to be in play here as well. Oh, absolutely. There's push and pull. You, you got to think, too, that you know, this was an expensive case. Yeah. Um, and so while the, the potential of creating a platform where you could have recruited guys all over the world with this, with Shaheb, not knowing he was working with the FBI, uh, would have been amazing. Yeah. Feasibility, I think, was always up in the air. Well, expense, I mean, they were spending a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the laugh out loud moment where where Tamara calls over his other fellow FBI agent who's also undercover, like, you got to come over here. He's like, I'm tired. Like, you got to see my room. <laughs> you have to yeah. see the room the FBI has put me up in. I guess it was in Dubai mm -hmm. um, because it was glorious. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the background stuff because the FBI, like the CIA, is more than just people on the front lines. And I think you guys do a great job of showing how much work goes into one of these operations. The idea of the tech ops guys that build the legend. In this case, you're creating a persona that has existed for a long time, according to the, the legend, meaning websites, Facebook pages, financial accounts, all had to be perfect because the high leadership of Al-Qaeda is going to be checking this guy out mm -hmm. and seeing if he is actually who he says it is. And one little mistake could get someone killed. I mean, the tail. So if you think of uh, Tamara as the head of the snake I mean, it, this tale goes forever. I mean, you could, like you said, you've got the guys who built the legend. You have um, all the guys that work on all the tech stuff for the, for the listening devices. I mean, you have the, the actual case agents who are in charge of, of, of taking care of building the case. Um, you have accountants. Mm -hmm. You have uh, people doing aerial surveillance teams. Um, I mean, it's really a team effort. I mean, you know, Tamara gets a lot of the credit, but, but I think he's quick to point out that it's, it's a lot of everybody. And I got to meet some of the guys, and I mean, it was really interesting to see how they kept all the balls in the air. I mean, to me, it's, there's, there's an analogy here to the logistics guys in the mm -hmm. military. Yeah. You know, where I was a tanker in the Army, and, you know, the M1 tank is not measured in miles per gallon. It's gallons per mile. And I don't care about my $5 million tank. If I don't have a guy in a Hemet bringing up fuel then it's a pillbox. And it's a pillbox only so long as I have ammunition. And, you know, the unsung heroes of these operations, even with special operations, if you're not airdropping in supplies, you're not providing people with ways to, like SF guys, ways to employ people and train people and give people weapons and forget it. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be kind of the unsung heroes of this story also are the people that created... He goes through German customs, essentially, as the fake guy... And Germany's pretty damn good at catching bad guys, and it works. They, they didn't know that he was working for the FBI, and his legend convinced them that he was who he said he was. That's exceptional. Yeah, They're really good at it. Yeah. I mean, and then the linguists, because you got to think of most of the conversations were in Arabic. Mm -hmm. So the linguists doing, you know, instantly transcribing that stuff or monitoring those, the, the, the wiretaps. Um, yeah, I mean, I was impressed with how well it went. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the other thing, too, that I found interesting is it was that glimpse at this hybrid agent, right? You see how he, he could go overseas and be an intelligence agent, and then when he's home, he's a cop. Mm -hmm. And you kind of, he vacillated, the FBI has this ability to vacillate between both of them, which I thought was interesting as well. Well, because they, they themselves are a hybrid organization. Yeah. yeah. 
And he, he, you know, he comes, there's a, there's a, one of his rite of passage to get into the unit was working with the law enforcement side mm-hmm. of the FBI and kind of proving his chops there before he got pulled over to the CT side, to the national security side. Yeah, I mean the the that's the case with the uh, the guys the the human trafficker mm-hmm. the Turkish guy which I I just I love that story I love just how he meets him I love he sits at his table in the reserve table right. all that stuff is just I don't know it's fun yeah and it really reminds me of of kind of what a like a CIA case officer has to have a level of prudence a level of judgment but also risk taking and the ability to know when it's time to take a risk and you see that throughout this book as well where he says, I've got to do this. It's risky, but I got to do it because I have to create an impetus for them to come to me or, or something like that. I actually have to push back. It's knowing when to act angry, you know, to kind of maintain your cover. And all these things don't just come from training because you can't train that to somebody. This is instinctual. This is, there are good people who do this really well and there are people who just, just can't do it. I mean, you see that in the book. Yeah. When, when, when Shaheb comes, when they get him to come to New York, remember, because they're giving the money, and they call them the other FBI mm-hmm. agent who's going to be the courier to take it back to Egypt, he's not as skilled as Tamar. And, it's, it's not, and it doesn't work as well. I mean, you have a moment there, remember, when they're, when they're arguing about Islam and what true Islam is, where Tamar has to break up an argument. And then Shaheb is like, wait, you trust this guy to yeah. take all this money to our, to our brothers in the Sinai? Like, I'm not sure we want to do this. I mean, I, I think that speaks to what you're getting at, which is, there is training to it, but there is sort of a, an innate skill set that, that you've got to find in these guys. And again, I'm making analogies to the military. You see that all the time mm-hmm. with, the, with the special operators is that you can train somebody all day long, but there's, there's kind of the decisions and the instinct that gets, that's there or it's not from the very, I mean, it's kind of the nature-nurture argument, but there's a lot of people who just don't have it, and there are those that just are perfect for this kind of a job, and it has nothing to do with whether they're crazy or not, or psychological makeup. It's just, it's like some people can throw a nasty curveball, and I don't care how much you show me how to do it. I'm not Clayton Kershaw, right? I'm not throwing that kind of a curveball. It's kind of this innate ability that expands and, and applies to both undercover work for the FBI, but also the intelligence community. Well, I mean, I've seen Special Forces guys. Um, the best Special Forces guys I've ever seen effortlessly interact with the locals. And you can see the locals when they're on missions, how they look at them. Like there's some of them, they're like, oh, those are the Americans. Mm-hmm. And they'll call the planes in when we need them. And then there's some SF guys that the, the Afghans will look at and say, all right, where are we going? Like, right. I'm your guy. And I, and I think that that's also, you can't train that. Like I could train, you could train special forces guys all day. You can't train that rapport. And I think one of the skills that, that you see here with Tamara is the skill of emphasizing and understanding your target, but still doing your job. Mm-hmm. And we kind of talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but I, I think that that really comes across here where it's somebody, he had to be friends with the terrorists. You know, it's a tricky psychological situation, you know, where he, he actually liked the guy if it wasn't for him being a terrorist. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, I think one of the things I tried to do early is to try to make, these, make the terrorists, Shaheb and Jasser and Abbasi, three-dimensional people. Yeah. And I think the, the, the chapter that I always get back to is, remember they're having pizza and they're talking about the times they've reconned the bridges and they're jo- And then at one point, Jasser jokes, he makes a joke about stumbling a bunch of Canadians at a picnic. And they're, you know, uh, and, and, and that was, those are the moments I tried to capture where right. it's not always 
they just everybody doesn't sit down in a dark basement and they talk about death and destruction and destroying the West. I mean, they they are human and they they do joke around and they, and then stuff. But but and that's but to me that's what made the moments when they said, okay, now we're going to talk about our business, and it became more chilling when they actually talk about right like the ride the ride back to Toronto where 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 Tamara says, well, how does it, how are we justified? How is Islam justify us murdering innocent people? And Shaheb breaks it down and says, here's why. And yeah. if, that, I thought, was so, so much chilling because at that point, you've heard of Shaheb. He's got women trouble. Mm-hmm. He's concerned about his you know, school. The women trouble, uh, it was, it was, uh, I had to stop and be like, this guy's a scumbag. Because I got, he was so endearing with like how he was trying to... You know, you'll have to read this because I don't want to give away the whole thing. But the idea is he had a, a colleague that he had a crush on. I mean, straight up, he had a crush on her, and he was trying to get women at, like, how do I approach her? How do I deal with And you're like, aw. But then three pages later, he's talking about killing a bunch of people, a bunch of innocent people. And, it, and you can imagine, I mean, I'm, I'm objective as a reader, but someone who is living that, in that world and kind of has to juggle that, I could, if this guy wasn't such a, a, an asshole, I, maybe I'd be friends with him mm-hmm. in the real world. And there's a lot of enduring values about him that are completely overshadowed by the fact that he is a horrible person and a terrorist. Well, that when he switches the, like Tamara talks, when he hit flicks the switch, I mean, it's evil. Yeah. It's straight evil. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I've been, I was intrigued by Sheb. I think, I think the thing that you get from this book is you get Sheb, who is sort of the, uh, the radical looking for something and found it in, in radical Islam. Like he, he was lost. He was a lost boy that they, they convinced. And then you've got Jasser, who is pretty much a criminal who wants to sprinkle a little jihad on his mm-hmm. crime and make him feel better. And then you've got Ahmed Abbasi, who is by far the, he's the worst of the both of the other two because he is a true believer, but he's also savvy enough. Right, no, and I think that's the... What's interesting also is the creation of the legend because mm-hmm. it's kind of everyone has... It seemed to me like when he created his radicalism, point of radicalization, that that helped him to understand others and where they reached that point. And kind of to, to look at somebody and be able to differentiate very quickly, like, have they hit that point? Like, how far over are there? And then when he's kind of analyzing at the very beginning whether Jaheb's a bad guy. It's, does he still go to mosque? Did he yell at women? Like, he, he, he knows these signs that really reinforces how the book ends. And just like, you know, literally, like the last couple sentences of the book, this idea of I, a white blonde kid with green eyes that doesn't speak, is, doesn't speak Arabic, doesn't have a background um, in a Middle Eastern country, doesn't stand a chance of stopping these guys the same way this happened. You need people who are immigrants. You need people who have come to this country because they believe in it. And even though they are, I mean, he, he jokes in the book that like, you know, yeah, have I eaten during Ramadan? Sure. Have I missed going to mosque? Sure. Like, you know, Christians might not go to an Easter or whatever, but he's a pretty devout Muslim. I would say, I mean, it Mm -hmm. seems from the book that he certainly believes in his religion, but that is actually an advantage to American national security and not a disadvantage. Yeah, I mean, that's the, one, that's the first theme that we, I, I sort of stuck on when I talked to him, is that without him, you know, this, this terrorist attack might happen. Like, they may have derailed this train, mm-hmm. or worse. Um, and I think as long as we keep that in mind, I mean, there isn't, there isn't a country in the world 
that we don't have someone who looks like us. That's a power that no other country really has. And, we, and if we continually degrade that power, we're less secure. Mm-hmm. So that's where I, I really feel like we need to embrace the fact that we, we're a quilt. We're a patchwork. We, you know, we are everyone, which is yeah. one of the lines in the book, yeah. right? I mean, and, and, I, and I, I, we, we, we sort of hit you on the head on the end of it for that reason, is that if you missed it so far, yeah. here's the point. Right. You know? And a point well received. Uh, the book title, the full one, is American Radical Inside the World of Undercover Muslim FBI Agent, co-written by Tamara Elnery and our guest today, Kevin Maher. Maurer, damn it. We're going to leave that in because, uh, <laughs> because I got it right eventually, um, and I'm pretty happy with that. Uh, I'm even sitting here going, Joe Maurer, Joe Maurer, the baseball player, and I still mispronounce it. I'm allowed because my last name is yeah. what it is. Uh, Kevin the long and the short of it is, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. Oh, it was great. I really appreciate it. Thanks. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network, and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.